0: a Bible go ahead and open it to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six we're gonna continue through our our series The History of Our Witness. <laughs> that is just like a that's like starting in a hole. Sorry, anytime like you start in front of a group of people with coffee just dripping down your neck like it's a rough start. Let's pray. <laughs> okay. This is just a thing. Alright. Lord, oh God of mercy, we thank you for Uh, your wisdom demonstrated in something that the world looks at as foolishness. Uh, In the cross of Jesus, you are reconciling a very alienated and broken world to yourself, each one of us included, and we are grateful that you have chosen that path of wisdom and apparent folly uh, out of your grace That In the nature of who you are as a God of self-giving love, you have elected to redeem your creation. And so, God, we want to be captivated by that story today as we look into uh, the scriptures and as we look into the reality of uh, Jesus alive in the church through the Spirit. So, God, we give you this morning and ask you to lead us now. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, I like to think of myself as a good driver. Um, that was my wife, Lauren, laughing at me in that statement. I actually, as I continue to wipe coffee off of my head, I'm going to also say that I may even think of myself as a superior driver to other people. Just, I'm just laying it out there for you guys. I want you to see me in my brokenness. Uh, yeah, that is that is the truth. I, I would say that I tend to think of myself as better than other people on the road, and at least until uh, a few weeks ago when I had the privilege of having my overinflated self-opinion uh, humbled. Um, it was really a really fascinating moment. Uh, my wife had made muffins for a family. Uh, a lady had just had her first baby, and so I was sent on the delivery mission, which is great because people thank you, even though she did the work. Uh, And so I come, and I deliver the muffins, and feeling really great. Muffin delivery makes you feel pretty good. And uh, as I got in my car to back out, I was really shocked to find that something stopped my car, and it wasn't my brakes, right? Like, I just crunched the front end of somebody's pretty brand-new Toyota. So I pull right back in the driveway, knock on the door, and say, hey, remember how much you were excited about those muffins? Um, I think I just crunched your car. (laughs) Sure enough, thank God, it was actually the people we knew. Insurance took care of everything. Nobody was out, really anything, except for a little bit of stress initially. But, you know, in the end, I I had double blind spots, right? I I was blind to my own... uh, Well, I had an overestimated view of myself, which was a blind spot in and of itself. But to be fair... I also had just simply missed seeing a car, right? Like I did have the sun in my mirror, and there was some other trees overhanging. I just mi- I just missed it because I-, I neglected to give a careful examination of what was there. I just neglected to examine fully what was there because I didn't expect anything to be there. Like my ex- expectations kind of set the stage. And so the truth is that each one of us has blind spots as individuals. We've all experienced this on some level. Right? Like, I just didn't see that coming. Right? Um, and there are some things that just don't come into our view as individuals, which is why community is such an important thing, because when we come together, we can see better. Right? We have better perception because we have each other in our lives. But also, as a church, at any given moment, any given community of people can have a collective blind spot. Like we can miss things as a people. Perhaps you are new to church, or you've not been to church, or you've not been to church for a long time, or you've been part of a church experience where you were in the blind spot, perhaps, and, or there was a, a, a church that was characterized more by blind spots than perception. I don't know what your story is, but the, the point that I want to see this morning is what happens when a blind spot shows up in the church and how that's handled. Um, and, and when we have a blind spot, what we'll learn from today's passage is the result is neglect, actually, that needs in the body of Christ, God's people, are actually missed. And what results is actually something that can be really damaging to our witness. So this series is a look at our, the history of our witness through the book of Acts, and our witness to Jesus. And the reality is, when we have blind spots that cause us to neglect needs in the body of Christ, it actually leads us to live out a very poor rendering of what Jesus is like and who he is. Or to put it positively, when the body of Christ mutually helps itself overcome its blind spots so there is no neglect in the church, it actually offers the world a faithful rendering of what Jesus is like. It gives credibility to the good news um, of what is actually missing and distorted in the world. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let me stop there, okay? There's a lot happening right there, like the Hellenists and the Hebrews and the daily distribution and the widows. Like, what's going on? Well, first of all, um, verse 1 says, in these days. It's kind of shocking to think that the entire book of Acts takes 30 to 35 years, actually. It reads like one minute, one thing after another, doesn't it? It's like, just, it, it, it just reads like there's no time in between. But the reality is, the text we're reading today is reporting an incident that happens about five years after Pentecost. So after the Spirit descends on the people and they begin to bear witness with God's power, uh, what happens is five whole years go by, and then we hit this point where the church has grown and it's expanded. It says that disciples have been increasing. So there's more and more and more people who are captivated by the love of Jesus. They become followers of Jesus and they're spreading his goodness in the world. And so with growth comes growing pains and with growth comes more blind spots, right? And so Luke, again, I love this. He doesn't give us an idyllic picture of the church, right? He doesn't present us a story where the church has no issues. He actually presents a story where the church has plenty of issues. And so he is forthright here. And he says, actually, the spirit is present, disciples are increasing, and there's a neglect problem. And so he says it like this. He says there was a complaint or a murmur by the Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? (laughs) Like, what? Who is this group of people? Um, it 's a greek it 's a group of people who are primarily greek speaking jews so they're Jewish people who have grown up in what was called the diaspora or diaspora and uh, they had grown up in what was called a Hellenistic culture so it meant this that years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, you know Alexander the Great right um, uh, he goes through conquers an empire, and he exports his own culture to every post that he conquers, right? And so everybody gets Greek architecture, everybody gets Greek art, everybody gets Greek food, which isn't bad, right? Like, uh, and everybody gets Greek language. And so all of these things uh, take place. And when the, the Jews are taken into captivity during the exile... They actually are spread all over this Greek-speaking world. And so you would have had Jews who grew up in a Greek culture, not a Semitic culture. And so this is a group of people who become followers of Jesus, but their primary culture is more Greek than Jewish. They're not people who would have grown up in the land of Judea around Jerusalem. They're people who would have maybe grown up somewhere in Alexandria or somewhere in Greece or Asia Minor, and what they've done is they've come home for retirement, right? And so Jerusalem is like Florida or Arizona, right? It's like you go there when you're too old to take care of yourself, and you go and you hope that a family member takes care of you, or you throw yourself on the the system, around the temple that would have taken care of widows, And so the hope would be to be buried in the Holy Land. That's why they're gathered back around Jerusalem. Are you with me? Okay, so that's the group of people. They're culturally different. And um, they make up about 10 to 20% of the population. So it's a minority group. And so the, the complaint is against the Hebraic Jews, the people who would have spoken Aramaic, a Semitic language. They wouldn't have had the exported Greek culture. They would have been actually fairly uh, Hebrew in their thinking and their practice, and they wouldn't have had all the outside influences that the Hellenists would have had. And so the complaint comes against the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews uh, that they have a cultural blind spot, that they're missing a group of Jesus followers in their midst. And, and what's missing is that the Greek-speaking widows are getting overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So again, the widows and the orphans are two characters in the Bible that represent the most vulnerable people in the society. Uh, if you were a widow, you would have lost any stream of income in the ancient world. You wouldn't have any uh, title to land. You wouldn't have a stream of income. And so you would be at the mercy of people around you, ideally family, but if they weren't around or they were dead, then you would be on, kind of cast on the system. And so there was this Jewish practice, two Jewish practices actually, in which widows would come and receive enough stuff that live for about 14 days and then you'd circle back around and you'd get what you need for the next 14 days and it was this kind of Jewish welfare system. And so um, it's a very important practice within Judaism and within early Christianity to take care of the most vulnerable people. James, the leader of the Jerusalem church and the brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter what he considers pure and faultless religion. He says it's this, it's to look after the widow and the orphan and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so it's a highly important practice within early Christianity just to take care of the most vulnerable within the body of Christ. Are you with me? And so this is the practice. And so the church, like Israel before it, takes care of the most vulnerable. And uh, in the case of this early church, uh, people are selling property and, and they're bringing all the proceeds so that people like these widows can eat. And the widows would have been, again, like a group of women who had no viable option for caring for themselves. No land, no title, no property. And widows were regarded as needing care from the community when there was no family member to take care of them. If you want to read more about the practice of the early church with widows, read 1 Timothy 5, right, where it says to honor widows who are truly widows. And then he walks through, like, this is not a widow that counts, right? Like, if they're really young, like, they should probably, like, work... And, you know, like he walks through all of that, right? There was some criteria. And so this was considered important work. It was a ministry. It was a ministry of the church to meet the practical needs of the body of Christ. And when there's neglect, it, it often can burst and bubble into something called division, right? If you're feeling neglected, it stops feeding a relationship, and you stop feeling like it matters to continue to be united to people who neglect you, right? It doesn't, uh, it doesn't help community. Now, what's interesting to me here is that Satan attacks the church with persecution, external force, right? And then he attacks the church with hypocrisy. That was the story of Ananias and Sapphira. See if we can poison the movement from within. And now I think this is one more threat, the threat of divisiveness, but look at what happens. I think we can learn something from the early witness of the church here because um, every one of us is going to be on one side of the neglect coin at some point in our life, or maybe you already have. You're either feeling like your personal needs are not being met or you're the person who's failing to meet some needs. You can be both of those in the same conversation sometimes. Um, (laughs) So um, the reality is all of us will have a blind spot or we'll be in the blind spot if you haven't experienced this yet, um, you will. You just need to get around people, okay? Um, And so the temptation is often to let the grumble, my needs not being met, turn into bitterness, and then it corrodes the relationship that we have with people, and it corrodes our belonging to a church community from the inside. And so here's... Um, how this plays out for us if we're going to be an accurate witness. Remember, we are witnesses. Jesus has bestowed that identity on us as a church. You are a witness. And then he says, the issue is whether or not you're going to be an inaccurate witness or an accurate witness. And if we're to be accurate witnesses to offer a faithful rendering of what Jesus is actually like, then we will best represent Jesus when we solve issues of unity right away. This is the first point for today. That when we solve issues of unity right away and quickly, we actually can represent Jesus well. Um, I hope you sense the urgency that this text bears, that there's a a complaint, and then right away, it says in verse 2, that the 12 um, summoned the full number of disciples together, right? As soon as they heard the complaint, they got people together to start working a solution. And um, like the Hellenists, Uh, We need to learn to give voice when something's not right. It's really easy in our culture to just back out of relationship, to just disappear, right? It's really easy for us to fail to be committed to the relationship enough to push past awkwardness. It just is. But we won't get a faithful rendering of what Jesus is like if we shy away from the hard conversations of relationship, right? Because Jesus himself pushed through the awkwardness of human life for the sake of redemption and reconciliation. And so um, we have to learn, right, to be like the widows and to say when something's not right in relationship and in community with the church. And by the way, the the complaint wasn't the drums were too loud, right? (laughs) Like... And by the way, like, when we have drums that are too loud and you're complaining about it, I'm going to be like, yes, we have drums finally, right? But so, like, who who cares if they're too loud? We have them. But, um, you know, that's just the mind of early church plants. Um, And so the reality is they knew the difference between wants and needs, right? The need was we have widows who aren't eating. That's a need, and they expressed it. Um, But when we feel we've not been heard or responded to, in a way that's equitable or loving, the thing to do is to actually come to the person and say, I I want you to know how this made me feel, right? Um, And when we see a pattern that begins to threaten unity, we actually need to speak to it. One of the the things that helps it, though, and this is the thing, where we're early on as a church, we will create the culture here in which voicing things that aren't right is actually safe. Right? If we're defensive, it won't ever be safe to voice when things are off, right? And they'll get off in some way or another, right? Or have too many donuts or we don't have enough coffee. I don't know, whatever. Like, there'll be something. And so if we're defensive, it won't engender any more conversation. If we're responsive, it will create the safety to continue to be an honest people. But the point is we prioritize solving relational issues of unity because it was a priority for Jesus. He says in Matthew 20 or 5:23 and 24 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come and offer your gift. In other words, unity has a direct relationship to worship. The two can't exist without each other. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you think you can have worship without unity, you're kidding yourself. And if you think you can have unity without worship, you actually just have a click, All right? And so that's, that's what he's saying here. We actually want to solve issues of unity quickly for the sake of a faithful rendering of Jesus. So what happens when the blind spot's addressed? Well, let's look at the text the 12 summoned the full number of disciples together, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. <laughs> okay, how does that sound? Does that sound like a arrogant statement? It feels that way at first, doesn't it? But let's remember the context. Who are the 12? The 12 apostles Jesus chose, right? And he gave them a mission. He said, you're to go as my witnesses, to the ends of the earth. It's been five years and they're still in Jerusalem. What you're hearing is not arrogance. What you're hearing is urgency. We have a mission. We have to tell the news as eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. We have got to get the message out. And so it's an urgency, actually. And so, uh, you know, they are, are people who are, Not primarily arrogant or aloof from the needs of the ministry, um, but they are busy being the FDA when, in fact, they have a a a call and a mandate from Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so you can sense the frustration of we can't do our primary calling if we're filling in another person's calling. And uh, one of the things I would suggest to you, too, just to safeguard the assumption that they are being arrogant, is that they have probably been serving the tables for the last five years, and they've been busy doing that, and it's actually hindering the message and their, their ministry of the Word. It's actually gotten in the way, okay? And so they're not detached and aloof. If anything, they have been discipled by Jesus, who is anything but detached and aloof as a leader right he was always present with them in fact if you want to get another visual on what it was like for an apostle to minister in a context look at 1 Thessalonians 2 where paul says we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children we were so affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel not just the words right but also our own selves And then he goes on and he says, remember our labor and our toil and we work day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. That's the apostle attitude, actually. So they're servants, but their calling is getting diminished. And so the apostles recognize that it's actually sin for them to neglect their primary calling of preaching and prayer. And so they say, uh, which any good leader will do, um, I'm actually getting in the way of other good ministry happening, my ministry has become a bottleneck, and so I actually have to step out of doing too much stuff so that more people can get it done and do it better. Right, that's actually what's happening. And so, um, when a leader has to do everything, like wait tables and preach, right, that, he's, he's going to end up neglecting somebody. And so biblically wise leaders know their priorities and they don't get in the way of the ministry of the body. Instead, they equip it and they enable it. And so um, serving tables is actually hurting their effectiveness. And so they wisely address the problem and they say, Therefore, verse 3, brothers, um, go ahead and pick from among you seven men of good repute. That is, they have a good reputation. They have a track record. They are known. right. These are not people who are just popular. These are people who have lived out a faithful expression of Jesus. So they have good repute. says that they're full of the Spirit and wisdom. The primary influence in their life is God's Spirit, and they're trustworthy with decisions. They're wise. And so we'll appoint uh, these people to this duty, verse 4, and then we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I love the contrast between the apostles and our own modern day leaders, right? Because uh, it's a contrast of character. When the problem comes up, what do they say? Let's fix it, right? You choose some people and we'll empower them, right? They don't say that's the widow's fault for being neglected, right? They don't blame the victim. They don't call it fake news or report, right? They... They don't redefine what needs are. They go, well, actually, what widows really need, they, they don't do this to protect themselves. What they do is they get out of the way, and they say, will you please solve this? We'll help you. And so they hear it, and they show ownership of the problem, they don't dodge it, and then they structure according to the needs. And so they, they grasp that the gospel isn't merely going forward in word because it's being hindered by a lack of deeds. So here's, here's the second point that I want you to take away this morning. We best represent Jesus when we hold on to ministries of both word and deed. And here's what I mean. We, we have to hold on to the tension between, like, learning what the Scriptures say and doing what they say. Are you with me? Like, you can't have one or the other. There are church personalities that want to just do a bunch of stuff, and at the end of the day, you are what you do, and that's, that's, that's a scary identity. There are also churches that it's all about knowing Scripture without much attention to its implementation. And I would say the picture we get in Acts 6 is a church that recognizes we cannot let go of either one. That A faithful representation of Jesus has to be a representation of Jesus that holds to the understanding of His Word and the living it out together that word and deed are absolutely necessary. One is not better than the other. They actually work together. And so in your own personal life, that means having a diet of Scripture where you actually hear from God in your life. And it also means having an output of service where I actually share myself and my gifts and my energy and my resources. That I can't be a faithful representation of Jesus if I'm not hearing from him and obeying him. Like, I have to have both. And then that's also true for the church, that when we neglect deeds, we undermine the potency of the word. But if we also only practice deeds, we don't have the clarity of the word that directs and guides and gives meaning to the deeds. This just makes sense. And so this is the church we have to be the church that holds on to both. And they say, okay, choose some qualified people. And I love what they say. They say, pick people who have a good reputation, who are full of the spirit and wisdom. In other words, taking care of these widows is not just a menial task. It's a spiritual activity, right? Setting up tables in the morning is a spiritual activity here. Watching kids upstairs is a spiritual activity setting out. Donuts is a spiritual activity because we're trying to create an atmosphere where people can encounter Jesus, right? And so the point isn't that it's all about what you do. It's actually about how you do it. And so if you take care of widows with a grumpy, self-centered heart, it's no good, right? But if I take care of widows full of the spirit, if I'm somebody who says how I take care of the widows is as important as who I'm taking care of, then I actually have the capacity to be a faithful representation of Jesus. And so they say, it's all spiritual, right? The practical as well as the preaching, like it's, right? Not that I want to say preaching is impractical. I always like to say there's nothing so practical as good theory. (laughs) So we do want to think right. But the point is that both are elevated. Both are elevated. Verse 5, they say, uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering. Everybody got some say in this, right? There was a sense of feedback. And they they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they set, uh, these they set before the apostles, and they Prayed and laid hands on them. And so the people see the wisdom of leading in this way. And, and then I love this every name on here is a Greek name. So the Hellenists, the Greek speaking Jews, said, We have a problem. We're being overlooked. We're in your blind spot. And the Hebrews said, Yeah, you're right. We're going to fix that. And so instead of saying, Well, um, we, the Hebrews, know who to pick and how to do it because we're culturally superior, what do they say? No, they say, OK, pick for yourselves and everyone they pick is one of them. They're, they're all Greek names, which shows that they all understand the culture that's being missed. And so this is the third thing I want to point out this morning, that we best depict Jesus when we bear a multicultural witness. We best depict Jesus when we bear a multicultural witness. Uh, the, the Greek-speaking guys that were elected to serve tables, these guys actually understood the needs. There wasn't a fear on the Hebraic part of the group that said, oh man, they will influence us the wrong way if we give them too much influence. What they understood was we all love Jesus and he's calling the shots and he's demonstrating who he is in the context of a multicultural body and we've got to get on board with that. and We'll all be better together. That's what they understood And so we are better when we bear a multicultural witness. And I want to tell you that I actually pray for this every week for Beaverton. Because I actually want us to bear the kind of witness in community that looks and feels like Beaverton, right? Such that it can look like good news is actually taking root in people that might not like hanging out with each other. I've always said that the church is the weirdest place ever because none of us would be friends, probably, if it weren't for Jesus. Or maybe we would. We would have bumped into each other somehow. But the church is actually the one community, I think, on the planet that actually has an identity that's strong enough and durable enough to incorporate people from every culture on the planet. I actually don't think there's another form of community outside of people united to Jesus that are capable of being bound together as one in diversity like the church. I just, I don't think so. And Jesus actually says that, that oneness in diversity bears witness to the world because the world doesn't know how to do it. We build relationships on, if you agree with me, then I'll accept you. That's the way of the world. If you're like me, then I will return uh, a favor. But we don't do difference well in our world. And Jesus actually says in John 17, in his prayer before the disciples to the father, he says, I'm not asking for these only, his 12, I'm asking for all who will believe in me through their word. He's praying to the father, the son to the father in the spirit. He's saying that I'm praying that all may be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us or may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we bear a multicultural witness of true unity, it actually communicates to the world the believability of Jesus' love. That's what, that's what I'm saying. That's what the scriptures are saying here. It's, so we sit in it and we look and pray that we would be as different as we are large and bound together in unity that actually communicates the goodness of the gospel and the ability for the gospel to transcend difference and bond us together. For a common mission and common allegiance to a kingdom, but um the thing is uh, the way this works is really beautiful so they 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 call together these seven and say, "You're commissioned lead in this way." Um, the word for that we get for deacon is in here a couple of times the The office of deacon is not mentioned here. But later on, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you get to this office of deacon, somebody who is a servant, who serves the practical needs of the body. And this is probably the passage where the church learned that that was a need, right? Um, So these seven are not called deacons, but they are called to serve, and it's the same root word that we end up with, deacon. And so at this point in the story of the church, it's having growing pains, and it's learning what it actually takes to become A faithful witness. And later on, we actually install an office to help be that faithful witness. And we'll talk about what that looks like down the road. We don't have deacons here yet, but we have people who are acting like it. And so we'll continue to look for people full of the Spirit with good reputation and wisdom who are ready to step in and serve an area of practical need in the body. And so the next thing that we see is that we best depict Jesus when everyone serves full of the Spirit. When this is happening, here's what happens. Look at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And we'll stop at that verse. But what's happened is there was a blind spot, and the church was responsive to it rather than reactive, and they jumped in, and they said, let's empower leaders, and let's do this, and let's make sure we cover our blind spots. Everybody serves full of the Spirit, and the church grows, like the people respond and the gospel continues. And Luke links the right handling of neglected widows to this beautiful expression of the increase of God's word. So if you've caught nothing else today, hear this, hear this. Every believer in Jesus is actually called to ministry. It's not an option. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to a ministry of serving the body and bearing witness in the world. It's a non-negotiable. And so the reality is with a church plant in our stage of life, um, what I would say to you is when you hear us say, hey, we would love for you to help us in this area, don't hear that your value is in what you can do, because it's not. Um, Your value is in who you are in Christ. That's critical. And so we don't actually just need people to do things. What is needed is for people to do things with God, not for God. For people to live out their own sense of calling and ministry in the context of a body. And there's a difference between needing, being needed to do things for God, and being called to do things with God. Uh, The truth is, we don't serve God in a way in which He actually needs us. We serve God in a way in which we're shaped and grown by partnering with Him. one of the things that is true, if every believer is called to ministry, I would say here at Colossae, Beaverton, there are numerous opportunities to step into that. Um, but what is true, and the reason I started uh, talking about blind spots to begin with, is we may, when we're disengaged from serving, we may actually have a blind spot not only to needs in the body, but if we're disengaged from serving, we will have a blind spot to who Jesus is. Because when those seven started serving those widows, they didn't find that they were bringing Jesus to the widows, right? Jesus was in the widows, right? They met Jesus in the giving of bread daily to people in need. Um, one of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 25 is that whenever you serve the least of these, you were serving me. When Lauren and I first started in ministry, we were friends for a couple of years doing middle school ministry. And we, when we were newly married... We were doing middle school ministry, which means this, that when we were home in our cozy little apartment on Wednesday night, it was really appealing to just stay home and to not engage. And so we would drive from our cozy little apartment going, this is the last thing I actually want to do right now. Sorry if you were one of our middle schoolers. Um, but it would honestly it'd be like 15 minutes of like, oh my gosh, I'd so much rather be off the clock. And we would leave every night at 9 o'clock, head back to our cozy little apartment saying, that was the best possible use of our night ever. Every single week, we'd come in going, I don't want to do this. Every single week, we'd leave going, oh my gosh, did you see what happened with so-and-so? And And when this kid included that other kid. And we saw Jesus in these little prepubescent and pubescent people who were very confused about what was (laughs) happening in their life right? And yes, we were there to serve, and yes, we were there to help be a presence of Christ, but what we found was Christ met us in giving and serving, right? And that's what happens for us. So the blind spot issue is, will we see Christ in the body? And I would say to you, if we're disengaged from the body and we're not actually serving the body, what we find is we miss Jesus. And you might say, yeah, I can have my relationship with Jesus without the church, but I want to tell you He chooses to have a relationship in the church and through the church. And you meet him in one another. And so I would encourage you today to to look for finding Christ in the body and be ministered to Christ by ministering to his body. When every part of the body serves in wisdom and full of the Spirit, we meet the needs of the whole body. And it actually removes a blind spot that the world has about the truth and validity and goodness of Christianity when the body serves full of the Spirit. Because the truth is, um, we offer a faithful rendering of who Jesus is when we actually seek to meet the needs of others because we believe a gospel that says that Jesus Christ has met our needs first. That's where this comes from, and that's how you get there. And that's why we go to the table every week. Because it's a moment where we say, I'm not here to do something for God. He's already done something for me, and he's included me in his body. He's met my deepest needs by reconciling me in my alienation. He's met my deepest needs by providing relationship in my loneliness. He's met my deepest needs by forgiving what I cannot atone for. He's actually taken the initiative. And so he says take my take this bread right it's my body given for you take this cup it's my blood shed for you and so we come to the table as a way of saying god i you have overcome my blind spot i was blind to you and your goodness and you have come to me and you've shown it to me faithfully and so i want to just invite you to the table this morning to receive the bread and the cup and pray for the screamer uh, and. Uh, Some weeks are less distracting than other weeks, but I want to invite you to the table, and I want to say, come recognize the one who's already met your needs, who said, I will not neglect you, even though you've neglected me, and I've brought you into my family so that you can experience my fullness in community. Let's pray.